the most important thing in any one of my companies is the CEO and the team that they recruit. And it almost doesn't matter what the business model is initially. We have to believe in that leader and the team, the type of people they attract, particularly in healthcare. You know, you start with ethics, ethics, morals. What are they in the mission? Yes, they want to make money as an entity and to be a successful entity, they need to make money. But is their mission really to change things in healthcare and to better people? If you don't get a yeah. sense that that's their number one mission and goal and raison d'etre, we're not interested. It's just too fraught. That was Annie Lamont, co-founder and managing director of Oak Healthcare and Fintech, more commonly known as Oak HCFT. Annie, as many of you know, is one of the nation's leading venture capitalists. Her firm focuses on early to growth stage tech companies that are trying to reshape the future of healthcare and financial services. She was joined recently by Oliver Wyman, Sam Glick for a video interview about the growth of venture capital in healthcare, what excites her about the market, and where she sees growth opportunities, including the push for home care and outpatient services. And as you just heard, she talks passionately about the importance of leadership. This is an edited version of that interview. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication, health.oliverwyman.com. Now, as we pick up the conversation, Sam has just asked Annie whether or not we are in the dot-com boom for healthcare. Well, I'm not sure dot-com boom is always uh, has positive connotations. (laughs) (laughs) Although I I will say, I mean, let's face it, Amazon, Google came out of that. So there are many amazing things actually were funded during that time. But yeah, I I do believe that actually. Um, And anything with digitization right now, we're finding fintech, healthcare, so many industries obviously are are being well-funded. But I think that the most amazing thing that it is an inflection point for the entire industry, and it's not just about the financings, it's about a market that's ready to accept a different product uh, and think about innovation in a different way. And we weren't there five years ago. So what do you think happened? I mean, it's interesting. You you take some of the stories are clear. Like you take something like telehealth. We had telehealth for 20 plus years before the pandemic. 70% of people had some access to it through their health plan or provider, employer, whatever. Fewer than 10% had ever tried it. And when they tried it, they didn't like it very much. Pandemic hits, everybody's kind of forced to try it. All the experiences get better. And it's not at the pandemic levels like it was at the peak, but it's settling in the kind of 20 to 30%. But that was one very specific inflection Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. What is different than it was five years Mm -hmm. ago? Like Mm -hmm. what what has made this happen in your Mm -hmm. mind? Mm -hmm. Well, I think first of all, on the on the digital and telehealth side, massive behavior change, right? So that there is something in terms of reflection point and adding virtual models to the existing models of care, uh, and I think that leads to more home care. Um, it changed really not not just the consumer behavior, right, but the physician and provider behavior. So I think people are thinking differently, and it does enable a whole opportunity in health in home healthcare. Uh, which is massive. Like, who who wants to go into a nursing right. home <laughs> right after COVID? Who wants to be institutionalized? I think that's just, just a different perspective that I think will let a thousand flowers bloom. I think the other thing, though, that's really important is this pay-vider model. Mm-hmm. You know, the combination of payer-provider, whether it's from the payer direction, like a devoted starting as a Medicare Advantage plan, a Meta ME plan, and then adding sort of a digital version of provider to what they're doing. 
uh, or from the provider side um, where primary care is now owning risk. And that you can see from a village MD or an Agilon uh, or an Oak Street. And that it's an incredibly important moment in terms of providers owning risk because we keep trying to fix things from the payer perspective yep. and that's not going to work. Uh, and if you think about, you know, payers, I mean, it's basically 15% of the cost in healthcare and provider, the whole care management world is 85% of the cost. Yeah. So you have to go after the 85% of cost and you have to think about that. And if providers are not incented to care about cost in a way while they're thinking about quality, then the whole system's broken. Um, and this is a way that you can actually incent providers to care about cost. Well, I think, I think what's interesting about somebody like Devoted in particular, because yeah. so last year we had a conversation with Greg Adams about the same thing. Kaiser Permanente has been doing this for 75 yeah, plus yeah. years. And we had a conversation about, well, why isn't it spread, right? Why isn't there a Kaiser in yeah. every community? Yeah. And, you know, some of my reflection on that is we've tried, we've been pushing it sort of value and new mechanisms of reimbursement for a long time. We had a PCMH wave, we had an ACO wave, mm -hmm. we had mm -hmm. all sorts of them, mm -hmm. but fundamentally we were trying to do it on the same supply. Mm -hmm. And I think when you sit in a hospital boardroom, ultimately for all good intentions, value will bring down reimbursement, but, but you still have supply use, right? You're still mm -hmm. the biggest employer in town. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. what's so interesting now is that when you take a player like Devoted, mm -hmm. what they're doing is building new kinds of supplier. When you take somebody coming mm -hmm. into the home, mm -hmm. and so they don't sort of have this mismatch when they get a value-based incentive right. to say, well, I still need to keep something full, right? I still need to, to right. be busy. Right. And I think it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, do you buy that? What do you say to the skeptics that say we've been doing the pay buyer thing for a long time? And no, we haven't. Yeah. I, I think the, the reality is in many of the ACO models, if you looked at what didn't work in value-based care, it was driven by ACO models that were driven by healthcare systems yeah. that were mostly driven by hospitals. Yeah. And the reality is those are, those are cost centers, right? Yeah. And, and if you look at every model that's making more money, it's because they've driven activity away from the hospital. Um, and so it really has to be driven from a perspective of more, not always, but more primary care than at the tag end of the model in terms of the inpatient side. Um, and I, I think that's the difference is that we finally have some models where people are showing that driven from the primary care side you, with primary care, people think of primary care and they only think of what that doctor does in, you know, in the office and but what the doctor can do, right, is it drives 70% of downstream, downstream yeah. costs is driven by the, you know, by the primary care doctor. If they're enabled with tools, infrastructure, care managers, you know, they can't do it all themselves, um, but they can do it as part of a institutional, as a corporate entity. Yeah. So, I mean, to that point, so there has been record amounts of money flowing into not just health, but digital health in particular and yeah. enablement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it feels like five years ago we were talking about when we might have another billion dollar healthcare company. And now we yeah. seem to have one every week. Yeah, um, that's amazing. It, and they're getting valued like software companies. They're getting valued right. like they're in right. the business of tools and enablement and platforms, okay. even when they have a lot of people and a lot of physician relationships. Yes. Yes. Is everything overvalued right, right now? Is this gonna crash? <laughs> or is healthcare really becoming a right. software business? Right. Right. Well, I'd say you know, to public market versus private market. Yeah. First of all, I think the public market's actually already adjusted. Okay. If you looked at a lot of the, pro the public multiples, 
uh, stock prices where the peaks were, where they are now, there's been a correction. So we've had, we have not had a correction on the private side. Yeah. And there is usually a lag in that. Um, but I will say there are many reasons that multiples, you know, are still high, that um, there's enormous value in future companies. And that is one, the TAMs of these markets, you know, a niche market in healthcare is massive, yeah. right? So if you get something worth working and it's beginning to work at scale, you know, the scale can be absolutely enormous. If you look at our payers, right, UHG, 500, you know, you're talking about a $300 billion mm -hmm. market cap, uh, you're talking Humana, $50 billion market cap. So I think the markets are extremely large uh, and these companies are growing incredibly fast, Yeah. right? I mean, the amazing, they're growing like 300% growth rates. I mean, this is just, you know, a different scale. So I think that's exciting and I think a number of them you know, warrant the valuations. I just think the, you know, the problem in, in private, in, in venture in general, and even in the public markets is healthcare is complicated. You have a lot of new people that have come in. They can't always distinguish what's real from what's not. And so it's like peanut butter spread across the entire industry right. in terms of like valuation inflation, when the reality is it should just be going to the great companies that can scale. Yeah. And you're still investing yeah. in the great ones. You don't think And I'm only right. investing in the great ones. Exactly. <laughs> it, it does remind me, it's interesting yeah. when you just think about the sort of enormity of healthcare. Farzad Masacharya was with us a number of years ago yeah. now, pointed out that if you get a hundred doctors in a room, primary yeah. care doctors, yeah. that represents a billion dollars in healthcare spending. Yeah. They can actually control yeah. through downstream yeah, referrals. And you do that over and over again. I'm interested as you think about sort of these new players, whether they're in the pay provider yeah. model or they're yeah. in the software model, you mentioned they pick niches. And yeah. in fact, that's a good business strategy. Yeah. That's yeah. what you want to see as an investor. You want to see focus and right. you want to see a market you can really disrupt. It does mean that we don't seem to see innovation in healthcare distributed equally and that it's actually really hard to mm -hmm. truly innovate mm -hmm. at scale and not just kind of replicate some of the issues we've had with health inequity for generations in this right. country where yeah. your zip code determines right. your health status right. because of what's available. What does it take to make this stuff yeah. work at scale? Right. And is there anything right. that's exciting you? Oh, there's there's so yeah. many things. Just go. It's, Just it's, go. it's unlimited. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. But I, I actually do think that we go where the highest need is. And the highest need is where the highest cost is. Yeah. And so that does mean you aren't just uh, creating models, you know, like a forward where, great, that's great for the 1% of yeah. the private pay world, right? Um, I, you know, I think there's special needs plans, uh, dual, dual eligibles, for Medicaid, which are Medicaid and Medicare recipients. You know, we're creating these you know, pay vitor models all across these special needs plans. Um, and I think they're looking for those, you know, owning those most seriously ill patients, whether they be seriously mentally right. ill, like we have three companies going after SMI in different ways. Um, and I think that that's, that is a problem if you talk to every payer and every provider that nobody has tackled yet. Yeah. So I think it's, it's an epidemic. Yeah. It's so real. Uh, it's such an epidemic. Uh, drug abuse, substance abuse. You know, we have a company focused on that. Um, so I think there are a number, as you say, like very large niches that are about those that are most seriously ill and that can benefit you know, and do have this model where you're taking risks on a patient population of chronically ill or underserved. Um, we have a company called Main Street Health, which is taking the village MD provider owning risk model to rural markets. Oh, and nobody's figured that out and yeah. nobody's in these rural markets. And it's really a combination of like, it's back to the old, who's the local pharmacist? 
mm-hmm. and, you know, a bit of urgent care. There are a few primary care docs in these markets, but you really couldn't build a primary care doc model in these rural markets because there just aren't enough of them that are serving the population yeah. well. But you can from the pharmacy and the local, you know, CVS's and Walgreens aren't even there. You know, it's a lot of locally owned pharmacy models. And so like Main Street is actually wanting to sort of own the rural market and take this at-risk model to the individual um, and are having great luck with it. So oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, no, it's incredibly yeah. exciting because it's very underserved and really needed. Well, I think, I think yeah. particularly in this world when we talk about you know, all the headlines seem to be about talent shortages. And we have them. We definitely have them in yeah. particular professions. Yeah. I think if we're willing to think like that and realize that we have a healthcare workforce that is far bigger than we actually oh, yeah. acknowledge a lot of times. And yeah. you take somebody like, you know, there's, I think, 65,000 some odd retail pharmacies in the U.S. There's yeah. one in almost every town. What can right. you do with them? Right. Right. How could you use right. them? What do you do with other kind of complementary healthcare providers, right? There's a lot of stuff you can do. So you talk a lot about risk. You're clearly big on sort of alignment of incentives and a business model mm-hmm. that involves taking risk. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, that ends. Mm-hmm. Right? Structurally, that mm-hmm. ends. So if we get healthcare, right. and maybe this is the optimist in me, but if, if you get <laughs> healthcare where you've yeah. taken out most of the waste, yeah. the business model has to change. Yeah. You can't yeah. arbitrage a market anymore right. at that yeah. point. Do you worry about that at yeah. all, or do you think we have lots of runway? We have a 20-year runway there, okay. and I think we have a long runway. But we are, you know, we're also backing companies that use robotic process automation. And uh, if you think about staffing shortages, creating efficiencies are absolutely, you know, one way we have to go. Uh, technology really hasn't been used uh, materially in healthcare. Yeah. And I think there's a long way to go to really leverage the workforce we have uh, and do those simple ta- repetitive tasks uh, that we can't even find people to do anymore. So it's not about replacing people. It's just about finding efficiencies. And I think, you know, it is amazing. We have added over the last 20 years for every caregiver provider we have brought in, there have been 10 administrative people we've added to the system. Yeah. So this is not a winning formula for yeah. anyone uh, in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I think it's actually one of the challenges to change. Healthcare crossed retail yeah. three or four years ago as the yeah. biggest employer in the U.S. Yeah. Which is part of the problem and why it's so yeah. hard to well, change, Well, this is exactly right? the point. Yeah. If you're the biggest employer in town, what are you going to do to take cost down? Exactly. Right? Without really it's damaging really, that town. Right. It's um, very hard. But I think, I think we have, I mean, you pr- I would suspect you agree with me that as just underlying healthcare demand increases as we age, you have an opportunity to yeah. grow through technology, mm-hmm. which starts to address some mm-hmm. of that before you mm-hmm. really have to look seriously at employment costs differently. So on that note, I've got I've yeah. to ask, if we were sitting here in your living room five years ago, we right. probably wouldn't have been talking about the telehealth boom in the same way, the home health right. boom in the same way. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the scientific innovation that has come out of mm-hmm. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What do you think we'll be talking about in five years? Where are you betting? Where am I betting things are going? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that it's really home health. That I think that's the frontier where we're going to see things we've never seen. Uh, and I think it, it. I mean, it includes robotics and sensors and keeping people in their homes. And I do think we, you know, we joke about nursing homes, which is obviously no joke, given the number of people that yeah. have passed away in nursing homes this last year. But I think the reality is, is that it's so much less expensive to keep people in their homes. Ultimately, people are happier being in their homes, um, and so the enablement uh, of individuals in their home through technology and through services that use those technologies—that's going to be, I think, the big story. It's going to be very meaningful, I think, to society. Yeah, yeah. I certainly hope so. Yeah. We've talked about the kind of power of software and innovation, the power of 
what I think of as kind of a new kind of value-based reimbursement, okay. new kind of supply, a new kind of primary care. But we sit here in this country with 3,000 plus hospital organizations touching nearly every community. Right. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we thought we might have a hospital financial crisis. There were some estimates that one out of five could go under. And in some ways, that could have been a very cleansing, disruptive moment, a mm-hmm. difficult one, mm-hmm. but one that created a new kind of space. Right. That didn't happen. In part, there right. was federal funding. In part, volume returned actually relatively quickly by kind yep. of July, August of 2020. Okay. But what we now have are hospital systems with overworked caregivers, physicians who aren't sure how much longer they want to practice, but actually reasonably rich coffers who are, are looking right. to invest. As you think about the kinds of companies you invest in and this new model of a new kind of supply, new kind of primary care, mm-hmm, a new kind of mm-hmm, digital, mm-hmm. how do you think the health systems, and particularly those that are hospital dominant, need to change in order to be part of that and in order to evolve in the absence right. of a big financial disruption. Right, right, interesting. Yeah, well, that, uh, it's all yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the reality is they're, they're moving to more outpatient care. Uh, they're thinking about home care. So I think they're thinking about the right things. I just think the problem is that the, the center of gravity should really come from the other direction uh, in terms of the caregiving world. Um, and I think the if you looked at the ball- the P&Ls of these hospital systems, mm-hmm. still the profitability and the dominant revenues are still inpatient. The building. You're right. And everything that we've done, like if you looked at everything we do to create innovation, it is about keeping people out of hospitals. And so the question is, is, you know, can they get rid of that drug? You know, do all of these outpatient kinds of facilities, urgent care and others, are they all just even primary care networks that hospital systems own? Are they all just feeders to the hospital? You know, is that the ultimate goal or do they really rethink healthcare? And I, I don't want to indict all hospital systems, yeah. but, you know, it's a very hard, you know, that is the motivator, right? It's to bring people into the hospital ultimately. Um, so I think that will be the interesting juxtaposition. Like, what's the evolution of these systems in the next 10 years? Can they really think in terms of how do I o- over a lower cost for the system? Yeah. And the problem is if we don't move away from fee-for-service, which is the drug we're all on, right? They're right. all on. Um, then you're going to have a problem. If we can really move to a value-based system that's completely outcome-driven and driven by costs and there are enough payers and CMS things differently yeah. about how they pay these healthcare systems, then you're just going to get, you know, it's, it's the definition of insanity. You're just going to get the same thing over and over and over again and increasing costs. Yeah. So I talk to a lot of probably the same innovators you do. And one of the questions they inevitably ask is, should we take on the local health systems or work with the local health systems? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you advise them? Do you advise building around or do you advise Mm -hmm, building with? mm -hmm. Depends on enlightened leadership. I always think that people should go to the boards of of these systems and talk to them really about what true innovation means and what cost reduction means and really getting people to think differently. Because I think it's very hard for a legacy system to think differently, yeah. uh, particularly in the not-for-profit world. Uh, and when they think they're not-for-profit, but they're really driving for the same right. bottom line that every for-profit is. So I think it is difficult. And I think it is, as you point out, the largest employer in all these markets. And so we have to create other employers in these markets. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't have to yeah. incentives for disruption in a not-for-profit yeah. world. You know, you have a, you have a board that, that uh, literally by definition wants to 
keep the mission of the place going in perpetuity, which is very different than maximizing shareholder value. And there's a lot of problems with public companies looking at quarterly earnings and all that. But it's 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 a different governance. It's a different governance. And the question is, is your responsibility to the community or to the hospital system in that community? And I would say, of course, it's to the community. That's who who the hospital system is serving. Um, And so that's what they should be thinking about. But man, it's it's hard to operate that way when uh, you and I have been in in those boardrooms and everybody (laughs) thinks about growth and they think about the mission of the organization, not necessarily the whole community. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So on that point, and, and speaking of kind of governance and leadership, Bernie Banks has spoken with us about how we think about a kind of new kind of leadership, a bolder kind yeah. of leadership. My observation is that we have a lot of companies out there trying to disrupt healthcare that on paper look the same mm-hmm. or similar, and that the ones that do well and the ones that don't, the big difference is leadership. Would you agree with that? And what, what do you look for in leaders? I absolutely agree, because the most important thing in any one of my companies is the CEO and the team that they recruit. And it almost doesn't matter what the business model is initially. We have to believe in that leader and the team, the type of people they attract, particularly in healthcare. You know, you start with ethics, ethics, morals. What are they in the mission? Yes, they want to make money as an entity and to be a successful entity, they need to make money. But is their mission really to change things in healthcare and to better people? If you don't get a yeah. sense that that's their number one mission and goal and raison d'etre, then we're not interested. It's just, it's just too fraught. There are too many financial schemes that have happened, yeah. you know, in healthcare that you know we're we're just not interested in. They have to be that leader that people follow. And we say have to be to be an entrepreneur, you have to be a Pied Piper. You know, the people, yeah. you, know, you can't lead it without great people following, yeah. right? It's just, it's just the, the way the world works. And I think they have to have an amazing self-confidence, to the confidence to hire the best people, to hire people that are better than they are, um, to ask questions, not arrogance. That's the worst thing in healthcare or in any company, but really intellectual curiosity and to the point where they're so confident they will ask any dumb question of anyone, because there is no dumb question, of course. Uh, and there's so many new great people that come into healthcare. They don't. These entrepreneurs don't. There's no so much they don't know. Um, so, I, you know, those are just fundamental characteristics for us in leadership. Here, here, Annie Lamont. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for hosting us. Great today. to talk to you, Sam. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast, which was brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication, health.oliverwyman.com.